You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Okay, so in terms of um, the contribution that I wanted to make today, one of the kind of unintended consequences of the Eighth Amendment has been that the Irish state have, uh, have, have this unique policy construct called crisis pregnancy have invested a specific, uh, uh, I suppose, budget line and resources into a um, state agency called the Crisis Pregnancy Agency, and actually have given quite a substantial research budget line to the issue of uh, crisis pregnancy, um, which is, is an, an, an interesting feature. If you want to take anything positive from the abortion regime in Ireland, it is a, it is a feature of the Irish case that hasn't been... Um, so prevalent in other jurisdictions where um, abortion is legal. I think I would rather have the amendment of the constitution, obviously, than have a research budget line, but at least we have that there. Now, the first time that um, research was used as a kind of um, a, a point of call by the Irish government to um, kind of think through this, the implications of this amendment of the constitution was after the X case in 1992. So uh, when the X case happened in 1992, there were legal and um, legislative responses in the form of the referenda and the legislation that Ivana has referred to. But also the government at the time was uh, called the Rainbow Government, made up of the Labour Party, Democratic Left and Fianna Gael. And they commissioned as a social policy response a piece of research, which was um, a, a large-scale qualitative piece of research. A team in Trinity College were um, commissioned to do it. It was a multidisciplinary team. It had members from the um, School of Sociology, School of Social Policy and Social Work, and the School of Medicine. Um, and it entailed a research design that involved us as researchers. I was a member of the research team. Evelyn Mahan was the principal investigator, and Lucy Dillon was uh, uh, another uh, member of the research team. And it involved us traveling to Britain and meeting with Irish women who had traveled there on the day that they had traveled, and asked, telling them that this research had been commissioned by the government to try to understand what were the uh, reasons women chose abortion and travelled for abortion, and that that information would be brought back and would inform the Irish government as to what its, you know, Irish citizens were seeking in seeking uh, abortion in Britain, and that would inform social policy in Ireland. So we travelled to England and we met with over 100 women there and um, conducted those interviews, and that was in 1995 to 98 that that research was carried out. Um, I've subsequently done more research um, using that methodology, but that research uh, produced this book, Women in Crisis Pregnancy. Um, it was published in 1998 by the then um, Labour Minister, or sorry, Fianna Minister for Health, Brian Cowan. Uh, it, it was published on a Friday, um, St. Patrick's Day fell on a Thursday, and then the weekend obviously it was coming, and it was published on a Friday, and the recommendations weren't included. So by the time it came around to be published, the appetite for the research had kind of waned considerably. But what I wanted to do, the, this campaign for appeal is, as Amanda said, incredibly important. Um, the discourse that it has, um, I suppose, surfaced, in particular the discourse opposing repeal, has, it seems to me, succeeded in demonising women again, and certainly in creating this impression that there are these monstrous demonic women who seek abortion. And what it reminded me was that in this research, we had spoken to women about Irish women seeking abortion from Ireland. We'd heard what they had to say. And in a way, while there had been lots of different policy and service initiatives responded to what those women had to say, nobody had ever really listened to them saying, we actually need abortion. Um, and we, you know, um, 
So I, I want to just uh, repeat those voices again. So I am reading from our findings from 1998, but I think uh, change happens very slowly, and I think you'll hear resonances um, of what women say that are still very pertinent today. So um, in terms of the um, analysis, we were asked as one of the um, uh, kind of part of the remit of the study was to identify the factors and processes that um, led to women arriving at the decision to um, seek abortion. And this is uh, the extract from the conclusions to that. A number of factors influenced women's decision to have an abortion, and these in turn are related to the many roles a woman occupies. The role of a daughter, a student, a worker, a prospective mother, anticipating the attendant needs of a child, or of a partner or an ex-partner in a relationship, and in some cases, her existing role as a mother. All of these roles shaped and constrained women in their decision-making. All of these roles, or senses of self, were competing roles, and they all tapped into deep social and psychological domains for the women. It is important to articulate the competing pressures of these roles, which simultaneously shape a woman's decision-making in relation to abortion. Firstly, in her role as daughter, she feels she must live up to her parents' expectation that she will not get pregnant until she is in the appropriate social circumstances. She will try to fulfill her parents' career and job expectations for her. She'll sometimes be mindful that her parents may have invested considerable amounts of money and time and um, energies into her life to date. She does not want to bring her parents into disrepute or disappoint them. And she knows that her pregnancy may be a cause of social stigma, not just for herself, that she might, which she might manage, but also for them. She wants to spare them the pain, disappointment and anguish. And if she already has a child, she doesn't want to upset her parents a second time. Secondly, women described wishing to proceed to full responsible adult status by completing their education, training or establishing their career. Their place of education, training or work often made no arrangements for maternity leave or offered no childcare. So the woman was forced to choose between continuing her career or becoming a full-time mother. She may have felt that she was just about able to cope with the demands in her life at present, but she could not cope with the baby as well. <coughs> Thirdly, her anticipated role as a mother comes under question. All of the women spoke about motherhood as a social role, with attendant responsibilities to care for a child emotionally, socially and financially. Increasingly, their ideal conditions for motherhood included a stable relationship, a job, a home. And the modernisation of motherhood entails that women saw themselves as having to combine mothering and breadwinning roles. So women assess their ability to do both of these roles in light of their present context, such as their current job, their current occupation, their current home ownership, their financial position or their relationship. And those who are mothers already sometimes felt unable to cope physically or mentally with another child. Fourthly, women talked about negotiating the relationships with the father of their child. The relationship in which the conception occurred may now already be over. Alternatively, women were often in relationships which were neither secure nor stable. If the relationship is a promising one, she may not want to jeopardise it by having a baby at this point, which may indirectly end it. Alternatively, if the relationship is fraught with difficulty, a child will only compound the problem. In addition, the partner and his family may also be stigmatised by the disclosure of the pregnancy. Neither expected the relationship to lead to a pregnancy. It was unplanned. Those who are mothers already had to think about the impact of this pregnancy on the lives of their children, 
on their existing relationship with the child's father and with the implications for their wider family. If single and pregnant for the first time, women felt that if they were ever going to be in a position to become a mother and a breadwinner, she had to finish her training and develop her career. She was in some ways already planning to be a breadwinner and mother in the future, but just not now. Women described believing that the best interests of the child were not reducible to simply becoming a birth mother. Rather, they felt that a child should have the best conditions and opportunities and should be reared by their birth mother rather than placed for adoption. This is why they asserted that giving birth to this child now was not in the child's interests either. Abortion as the chosen outcome of a crisis pregnancy eliminated parental hurt, partner-related consequences, and guaranteed that the woman was able to continue her work or training. It also precluded bringing a child into the world in which its needs could not be satisfied emotionally or financially. However, the ultimate price for all of this problem solving was paid by the woman herself and by her decision, which only she alone could make. Given the configuration of conflicting demands on a pregnant woman's life and the conflicting and the interaction of the conflicting selves and identities that she occupied, the woman's decision-making inevitably incorporates uh, as, uh, lots of conflicts, and so it was not surprising that this pregnancy constituted a crisis. The fact that the crisis may be seen as socially constructed does not diminish its crisis nature. But its crisis nature and the way in which these conflicting ideas of self interact within the confines of a woman's decision-making process put the woman under enormous psychological strain. While she could articulate the respective reasons for having an abortion, it was her perception of the impossibility of resolving these issues and the difficult and competing demands that she felt under that propelled her towards her decision to choose abortion. She made that decision as an optimum one in the context in which she found herself. If she had attended for counselling, it was likely to be non-directive, and so the decision was always made by the woman herself. The woman framed the competing demands, determined that it is impossible to go ahead with the pregnancy except by hurting others, not being able to afford to give the child the future she felt it deserved, and so she made her decision. A decision which inevitably weighed heaviest on herself. There was an inevitable aspect of self-sacrifice in that decision. It was not an easy one. Accordingly, it was one of the most private, personal, stressful and lonely decisions a woman makes. And one which we argued was very morally bound. And so, while this research was carried out quite some time ago, when we hear women's stories which are surfacing now during this debate, there are lots of ways in which those resonances still very much hold. And the abortion regime in Ireland, which denies women's positions, denies women's agency, denies women's autonomy, and at moments like this, seeks to reshame and demonize women again, is incredibly denying of women's citizenship, really. And so, I guess it's one of the reasons we're here, seeking repeal of the Eighth Amendment. Thank you.
I work basically on brain um, issues and on how stress affects the brain and how the brain affects our body. Now psychiatrists, uh, I guess, have, had, have had a, an overly, um, an unpredictable um, part to play in the whole issue in relation to um, abortion in Ireland. And this stems from the fact that the first time the Eighth Amendment, the very strange piece of legislation that was brought into the country in 1983 that Ivana has given you the background to, the first time it really became problematic was in 1992 with the famous X case. And uh, that uh, poor girl, obviously everybody knows the case, she became pregnant uh, following a rape by a family friend and she was denied access uh, to the UK. And the specific reason she was denied, um, sorry, denied access to an abortion and then uh, tried to go to the UK and was prevented from going to the UK by Harry Whelan. And uh, this was obviously subsequently rescinded and she did go to the UK. But it was then put before people that uh, suicidality, which is what she was, she said she was going to kill herself if she didn't get uh, an abortion. Um, so suicidality then became a very central issue in relation to saving a woman's life um, because there was provision in the legislation which in, in the constitutional amendment which was never legislated for um, until 2013 but there was a provision for uh, an abortion in the case of a woman's life being threatened. But it was okay if a woman's life was threatened perhaps by cancer or imminent hemorrhage and um, bleeding out but it wasn't okay if a woman's health was threatened by uh, her mental health or by the possibility of suicide. So in 1992, um, an amendment was put to people to allow um, abortion or to actually to repeal suicide as a um, cause for um, potential death in pregnant women. And that was rejected by the Irish population. So the Irish population basically said, well, if somebody is going to kill themselves, um, it's just a valid uh, reason for having an abortion as if they're going to bleed out. So the same thing happened again in 2002, an opportunity arose um, whereby it was put to Irish people again to remove suicide as a ground for abortion. And they rejected it again. So when the... Uh, when there was a demand, a huge demand, particularly uh, from the European courts to legislate for abortion in the cases of women's life being at risk. Um, we had another debate, a very nasty debate actually, um, in 2012 and 2013, about whether or not a woman's life should be saved again as she was suicidal. There seemed to be general consensus that a woman's life could be saved if there was a medical issue that was threatening her life such as cancer or an obstetric um, risk that was threatening her life, such as bleeding out. And of course, a lot of the debate centered around the horrific case of uh, Salita Halpenover, who lost her life because of the Eighth Amendment, partly. And um, so the issue did center around suicide, um, again, but it scraped through the Oroptus finally, that women, if they were in danger of losing their lives by suicide, would be allowed to have an abortion. And since uh, the legislation was introduced, um, uh, in enacted rather, in 2014, there have been seven 
cases of women who have had abortions who, whose lives have been threatened. And I have been involved in many of those cases, all of whom are anonymous. Um, but I can tell you that they were pretty terrible cases. And the sort of women who get abortions on the grounds of suicide are not women who may have an occasional fleeting suicidal thought. These are women who are throwing themselves out under cars, who are trying to drown themselves in baths, who have already taken overdoses. And it is taken, uh, it, it, it's a sort of process if a woman is suicidal, she has to see, first of all, her GP or an AE consultant, and then she has to see an obstetrician, and she has to see two psychiatrists. So four doctors essentially have to see these women, not mentioning all the junior doctors and the teams that the woman will have to go through to reach the consultants. So they really are inquisitions rather than um, medical assessments. So psychiatrists have been central to this, but I just want to move on now to the work that I do. And the work that I do uh, really challenges, and the work that we all do in Trinity College Institute for Neurosciences, challenges the whole idea that there should be any, and that's a very fundamental point, that there should be any difference between mental and what's called physical health. Now, I don't call it physical health. I call it mental, medical health, and I call obstetric health, obstetric health. Because, obviously, uh, mental health is physical, because the brain is very much a physical structure, and although extremely complex, is subject to the same physiological laws that the rest of the body is subject to. And that's been the topic of my research, um, particularly in relation to depression. So we may feel that emotions um, are happening in our bodies. We may feel that our hearts are breaking, our stomach is full of butterflies. But in fact, all of that has been directed <coughs> by the brain. And stress, stress is controlled by the brain and stress occurs in the body. So the sort of dualism um, that was rampant in society and within medicine that gave rise to public discussions like the suicide clause being different to the medical clauses or the obstetric clauses are now being put to bed really by neuroscience and by stress research. And I've done a lot of research in this area and it's particularly pertinent in pregnancy where I've also um, done a lot of work. And during pregnancy, women are naturally physiologically stressed, and they're stressed because they have to not reject the fetus, because the fetus is essentially a foreign tissue. So what happens is women develop a lot of stress hormones in their blood cortisol, which is also a stress hormone, in order not to reject the fetus. So women are particularly vulnerable to developing depression during pregnancy, because they're physiologically primed to become depressed. And if a woman has an unwanted pregnancy, which is what we're talking about, that's what we're talking about when we talk about abortion. We're talking about a woman who does not want to be pregnant. And from research in the States, um, we know now that if a woman has an unwanted pregnancy, she's at 50% of an increased risk of becoming depressed. 50%. And in case you thought I said 15, it's 50 and we know this study is indisputable. It's a study that covers 40 states in the US that was published in 2014, called the PRAM study, as an acronym for pregnancy research. And the PRAM study, uh, as I said, looked at a whole range of factors in, uh, among pregnant women in the states. And they, this is what the Americans are basing their health care and their obstetric um, policy on for the future. 
And if we're talking then, if you, if you think about it then, if we're talking about the situation in Ireland, some women who have unwanted pregnancies are not actually getting abortions. They're not getting abortions, and perhaps that explains why we have high rates of depression during pregnancy in Ireland. We did a study um, in 2016, uh, a cross-sectional study, looking at 5,000 pregnant women in Ireland. And this was conducted in all the major um, obstetric units in Ireland. And we have higher rates of depression during pregnancy in Ireland, 16%, um, compared to um, comparable studies in the UK that found rates of 12%. And the rates vary in Europe between 10 and 14%. We're higher. I'm not suggesting it's because there are more unwanted pregnancies, but there are women who cannot travel. And I see these women. I see the women who have severe and enduring mental illness, who are not able to travel to my clinic down the road. These women do not have the wherewithal to travel to the UK. They don't have the education, they don't have the passport, and they simply don't have the mental capacity to organize that. And these women are being left behind. They're having um, children frequently um, from non-consensual sex, sometimes from violence. Um, ditto with migrant women, um, all the disadvantaged women. And we've had that horrible case in Ireland of Miss Y, where we can see that a, who was suicidal and the legislation didn't work. Um, so migrant women, women with, with um, debilitating mental illnesses, and women who are just not educated. I mean, we, we don't understand, uh, I think, sometimes, the degree of um, misinformation and how people who are, aren't educated are more influenced by misin uh, uh, misinformation that abounds. So the last thing I just want to talk about is doctors. In 1983, doctors were silent. The vast majority of doctors were silent. They're not silent anymore. Um, we have the uh, Institute of Obstetrics and Gynecologists who have formally, as a professional body, come out to reject the Eighth Amendment and have given their support to the government in terms of enacting legislation, hopefully post-referendum. Um, this um, <coughs> group of... The, the, the professional group in general practice, the Irish College of General Practitioners, they have advocated for change for many years and wrote a very strong document um, earlier this year on the need for change in the Irish services. We are going to launch um, on Saturday, this coming Saturday, a very historical um, declaration by in excess of 800 doctors in Ireland, from every county in Ireland, from every every discipline um, within medicine. And these doctors have given their names, their addresses, and their Irish Medical Council numbers. So this is not a makey-up group of doctors. This is a real solid group of doctors that are behind repeal of the eighth and who want change and want to help through the legislation. So I think, I hopefully, I hope that doctors and um, are making up for their silence in 1983. Thank you very much. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. 
and I'd like to thank Catherine for organizing this event. I hope we can have more of this type of forum between now and the referendum day. Uh, my name is Tomas Ryan. I'm a biologist. Uh, my background is in genetics, but my research is very much in neuroscience. I'm specifically interested in how the brain codes information, memories, and instincts. Um, I'm the biologist here, so I'm going to be speaking a little bit expansively uh, outside of my own specific area of research, but representing entirely uh, scientific facts about uh, brain development and about genetics. Um, it seems to me that most of the debate that has been happening around the Eighth Amendment, including here today, has been around the reasons for why we need to remove the Eighth Amendment and how we can make that happen. But what's missing, I find, in this discussion in general in the country is what we're actually talking about, which is abortion. And I think that in order to have a proper discussion about abortion, we need to be firmly calibrated in the scientific facts um, about, the, about the thing in itself. And this is particularly important because it's quite clear to me that people campaigning on the no side of this referendum are bending the facts or twisting the facts, and we may not be entirely aware of it uh, from the positions that people in this room here are coming from. Now, um, so I need to cover 40 weeks of pregnancy in 10 minutes. <laughs> I can't do that. Um, what I can do is I can mark out some salient biological events that I think very much relate to what we're discussing in this debate. What you'll see from left to right is the development of a human um, amongst uh, throughout 40 weeks of pregnancy and beyond. It goes to 45 weeks because um, we have to account for um, overdue babies and so on. Uh, broadly, broadly divided into three trimesters and into weeks. Now, uh, most of what we're going to be talking about is in the first two trimesters because um, the working group that the government established and what will likely happen in legislative terms if the Eighth Amendment is repealed is that we will have uh, effectively elective abortion up to 12 weeks of pregnancy and abortion when there is a serious medical concern for the mother um, up to about 24 weeks of pregnancy. But it's very important at this point in time that we discriminate between two different definitions of pregnancy. As a biologist, we tend to uh, consider that pregnancy begins at conception, right? That's fertilization. But that's not how society views, views pregnancy. In the legal and in the medical world, pregnancy begins at the end of the woman's last menstrual cycle. So you add two weeks extra onto that. And that means essentially 50% of women are pregnant all of the time. It sounds a bit absurd, but it's the way that we can we can do this in a in a it's, it's just kind of a clinical convention. So that means that pregnancy is effectively forty weeks, not thirty eight weeks, and I'm going to be using that convention for the rest of this talk. So um, ovulation occurs at day fourteen, right? That's two weeks into the supposed pregnancy. Um, fertilization will then take anything from hours to days, and then embryogenesis happens after the germinal period. The germinal period consists of about one week where the um, embryo must divide um, multiple times 
to form a ball of cells that is of sufficient mass to implant into the woman's uterus. That happens on day seven to ten. Then we are, we are three weeks into pregnancy at this point. Then we have eight weeks of embryogenesis, and we are not a fetus by anyone's definition until the eleventh week. Okay. So you hear fetus a lot, fetus is, is the operative word because it looks like a mini human being, though it's not. You're not a fetus until 11 weeks of pregnancy. For eight weeks before that, it's an embryo. One week before that is a journal period, and two weeks before that, nothing has happened. Now, the crucial developmental minds, milestones, which anyone uh, tends to talk about is fertilization, that's conception, implantation, attaching to the womb, Heart development, because it is such an emotive issue, the heartbeat and so on. Movement, because that's what animals do. Brain development, because that's where our consciousness is. Uh, pain, for obvious reasons. And viability, when will you survive outside of the uterus? Okay, so as I said, fertilization occurs um, around the point of ovulation, maybe a few days afterwards. When we have fertilization, you have a genetically unique uh, cell that has the blueprint for creating an entire human being. And this is where uh, most people who are on the pro-life side, most religious organizations, and most legal documents will say that life begins. Life begins at conception. Now, as a biologist, I'm often asked, when do I think life begins? Does it begin at conception? Does it begin at implantation? And so on. Um, as far as I'm aware of the facts, life began once, it was about 4 billion years ago. And everything after then <laughs> is a continuum. Sperm cells are very much alive. Egg cells are very much alive. But they're haploid. They only contain half the chromosomes you need to make a proper human being. When they come together, you do get a genetically unique human being. And as a biologist, this, does, this is when, for me, I say life, an individual life occurs. Then uh, it divides and forms a ball of cells called a blastocyst, and provided it reaches a certain size, it is heavy enough to implant into the womb at around day 10. After implantation, um, then the embryo starts to form. Now, um, implantation, incidentally, everything after that is where we deal with what's regarded as a termination. Now, the heart, basic heart cells are first visible at six weeks, but the heart itself as a, in a kind of a proto-heart stage that is almost beating, is visible at seven weeks of pregnancy. But we don't have a proper partitioned heart with all of its valves and chambers until 10 or 11 weeks. Regarding uh, movement, a lot of the posters that you'll see around, um, around uh, central Dublin and north Dublin, not in South County Dublin, they for some reason have less embryos in their pictures there. Um, <laughs> They'll talk about movements and reflexes at eight or nine weeks of age. At eight or, excuse me, at eight or nine weeks in pregnancy. This is when the baby starts, excuse me, uh, this is when the embryo starts moving its head left uh, to right. And that's basically it in some basic reflexes. You don't see proper movements until 11 or 12 weeks of pregnancy. And at about 20 weeks, that's when uh, women who are having their first child generally feel kicking. And for this reason, abortion was legal in 19th century Britain until 20 weeks of pregnancy. Um, regarding the brain, which for me I think is the most important and interesting issue, the spinal cord is present at six weeks of pregnancy, but we don't really have anything like a proper basic hind brain until about eight or nine weeks of pregnancy. And from that point, it is electrically active in this way that a shrimp brain is electrically active. 
but we see nothing like the coordinated kind of activity that's required of consciousness. Uh, we do see sub-threshold levels of bursts of electrical activity, which, um, even though we see it very firmly at 12 weeks of pregnancy, is the same kind of electrical activity that can be observed in brain-dead patients. So you're permitted to turn off the life support machine for an adult that shows that level of brain activity. Um, it's not until 23, 24 weeks of pregnancy that you start seeing coordinated brain activity, coordinated brain waves throughout the cerebral cortex that seems to be a prerequisite for consciousness, though it's not sufficient to um, talk about consciousness, and we can't say that they are conscious at that point in development. Uh, pain, of course, very emotive issue. Um, there is a large debate about when pain emerges in an embryo. The most conservative academic view is that it emerges at 22 weeks of pregnancy, though most people in the pain, in the embryonic pain field will argue it's more like 26 than 28 weeks. And some studies using uh, functional imaging following pain stimulation will argue there is no pain response until 30 weeks. Um, and lastly, of course, viability, viability of the outside of the womb begins at 24 weeks of pregnancy where you will have, with medical care, 50% uh, viable success rate. Okay, so knowing these facts, um, it seems to me that the only sensible ways to think about where we can say a human individual, not when life begins, but where a human individual begins, is logically either at fertilization, because you have a unique new human genome, uh, or brain development or viability. Implantation, the attachment of a, um, the attachment of a embryo to a uterus, is kind of arbitrary, but it's uh, used a lot in the, in the United States. Yes, because um, President George W. Bush's bioethics <laughs> committee were dragooned into finding um, metaphysical arguments for why being attached to the mother gives you more potentiality as a human being. Um, I really do not understand this. Um, even the Catholic Church will say very clearly that the, uh, fertilization is when human individual begins, implantation seems to be um, almost trivial. Heart development, the heart is just a pump. Movement, all animals, <laughs> it is just a pump. The movement, animals move, plants move, everything that's living moves. Uh, brain development is obviously what we need to be looking at. Um, and pain, yes, but pain is transient. It's not the same thing as, as a whole functioning individual. And viability, of course, is, is um, a point where one does need to consider what happens with the um, fetus. Now, the realities, just in my last 30 seconds, if I can, uh, the realities are that barrier contraceptives obviously prevent pregnancy in the first two weeks. And that's a fact. Um, morning after pill also works in the first two weeks, but because it delays ovulation. Because it intentionally delays ovulation, it means the blastocyst cannot grow big enough to implant. But when you do this, you know you are killing the blastocyst. You know you are killing the fertilized embryo and everything that comes afterwards. You're, 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 you're tripping it up. It just can't implant into the womb. You're preventing implantation. This, I think, is the greatest hypocrisy about modern abortion law in Ireland. Abortion pills uh, will work currently in the first 10 weeks, and they're becoming more effective and more ubiquitous. IVF is another huge hypocrisy that we have in our current law. 
So if you want to go to IVF, which allows a lot of people to have children who otherwise could not have, you have to form um, many embryos in a dish in the hope that some of them are, can be implanted. And those that remain are either thrown in bleach or left <coughs> in the freezer or donated to someone else. But currently it's estimated that there are over 2 million unused embryos in the United Kingdom because of IVF. This is legal and normal in Ireland. Uh, stem cell research we, is our best hope for dealing with most neurodegenerative disorders, and it involves using human embryos that have been made in the lab. We don't do this in Ireland. The law is ambiguous about it, but we fund it throughout Europe through uh, European Union uh, funding systems. And induced pluripotent stem cells are a new reality, which means that basically every cell in your body, from your skin to your hair, is potentially a new human being if we just um, alter the programming of the cell and implant it into a person, or just grow it in addition to a plasticist. So, um, but just to close, I know I'm way over time. Uh, the brain is ultimately an electrically chemical active nerve, uh, set of nerve cells. This is where we need to be looking for deciding when we need to give agency to a developing fetus. This is what it looks like broadly in the first trimester, second trimester, third trimester. Most people, when confronted with the facts, do not really think that the first trimester is human. Uh, we don't start off as a mini-human, we don't start off as a homunculus, we develop gradually into something that is a basic animal before we go into a human. And the best argument that I can think of to illustrate this is when I show that this particular embryo, this is uh, about the point where you have a beating proto-heart, it's not divided into chambers, you have a brain. The brain is basically electrically active and it's, we, we get basic, basic reflex movement, more like shaking at this particular point in time. It's not a, it's not a zygote, it's not a blastocyst. It's not just a ball of cells. But it's not a human being. It's, it's nothing like a human being and we know this. And the reason that we know this is because if you allow it to develop, this is what you get. Um, you get a mouse pup, um, but, and which will grow, of course, into an adult mouse. Beneath it is an identical embryo, but in this case, if you allow it to develop, it becomes a human fetus and eventually becomes a human being. Um, <laughs> the point is that the early stages of mammalian development are common between all mammals. If you go back into earlier stages of development, common between all birds, and uh, then with fish and reptiles too. And this is because of a basic fact in evolutionary biology that development recapitulates evolution. So um, at the very, very early stages of development, we can't tell the difference between a pig, a bat, a chicken, and a snake, and a human. And then as we get further into development, now we can see that the birds and reptiles are different, but still we can't tell the difference between the mammals. And it's not until you get to about eight weeks of pregnancy that you have a human embryo that is visual, vis, um, visually recognizable by us as a human, and that's because it has a face. And that's why the face is so emotive, and that's why all of the posters that you'll see around Dublin are focusing on eight and nine week old um, embryos. Incidentally, we don't know what a Neanderthal embryo would look like, or a Homo erectus embryo, or an Australopithecus embryo. Um, so I'd just like to close on that because I know I'm over time. But the point is that the idea of um, genetics, uh, embryology, and brain activity uh, not becoming completely uh, there until well into the second trimester is something that I think 
more people need to become aware of. Uh, thank you very much. Thank mm -hmm. you.